Stephen Trafton was here who was um, or is a Broadway actor, um, and he did his uh, Living Letters um, presentation, I guess you could call it. Um, if you missed it, uh, you should have been here, shame on you, wag my finger, uh, but you can go online and listen to it, it's going to be up for a couple of weeks, um, and in it, uh, what he does is, if you were here, he creates an atmosphere um, or with his words and what he says, and it makes you feel like you are really a part of, of that letter, the letter to the Colossians. And he sets the background uh, and why this letter was so important. And then he, by memory, quotes the entire book of Colossians, which, uh, as someone who does a lot of public speaking, is just impressive. Uh, I don't think he made one error the entire time. I mean, not even a stumble. Um, this morning, you're not going to get that. You'll get a couple stumbles. And, uh, but he was impressive. So I'd encourage you to go watch, uh, watch that. It's online. It'll be there for a couple weeks. Uh, but we're going to continue our series in Colossians. Um, and we're going to be doing that through the rest of the month. And so this morning, um, I'm going to give you a little introduction again to the book. Um, we're going to go through a couple of reasons why um, Paul wrote, wrote this and why he wrote this letter. Um, and so some of the background that you need to know, um, Paul, um, what most theologians um, feel like is that he's in Rome. And he's in Rome because he's in prison. Um, and he is writing to the church in Colossae, um, and, he's, and he writes and he pens this letter to them. Now it's a place he had never been. In fact, Colossae, uh, years before, hundreds of years before, it was a bustling city. It was uh, on a river and it had a lot of trade coming through it. But over time, um, cities and towns to the east and the west had gotten bigger. And Colossae had kind of decreased. Uh, it's a lot like a lot of the Midwest cities. If any of you are from the Midwest, I grew up in Toledo. And you know, at one point, some of those cities were great, like Detroit. And over time, uh, they've kind of become shambles. And so really, this is kind of what Colossae has happened to Colossae. It is now kind of a second-rate trading market town. Uh, not a whole lot going on there. And so Paul has never visited there, but one of his converts, and you find this, uh, and Stephen Trafton talked about this, Epaphras, um, who was a convert that Paul had probably talked to, shared the gospel with in Ephesus, takes the message, takes the gospel over to Colossae. And in there, a church forms. And now, the town of Colossae had um, mostly Gentiles in it, but it also had Jews. Uh, it also had a, a segment of, of Jews in there as well. And so the church was made up of Gentiles, which kind of were from all over the region, uh, and, uh, and also a, a strong number of Jews. And so... As the church starts, you have all of these people coming together. I mean, it's a lot like us, right? I mean, half of you didn't grow up in New Jersey, myself included, right? Some of you are locals, and some of you are transplants. Um, and, and so you have been coming from different backgrounds and different cultures, different upbringings. Uh, but we're all together here now as one body, as the church. And this is what is happening in the book of Colossians. Um, coming together, and they're having this church. They have been converted. Epaphras has preached this gospel of Jesus, um, that he is 
our Savior, that he is our sacrifice, he is our mediator between us and God, uh, that he is the way. And so the people accept that in this church. But there's also a lot of other beliefs that are surrounding the church, not unlike today. Um, People coming from different backgrounds and cultures, bringing in some of their own ideas. And so the best way I can explain this, have you ever been to a buffet line? I'm sure you have. If you haven't, you should. Um, And you get your plate, and you walk up to the food, and there is a bounty of everything you could ever imagine. And so you kind of decide, boy, this all looks really good. And you're not sure what you should take. In college, you know, we'd go through the buffet line. And one of my good friends decided that he doesn't want to miss out on anything. And so he would take everything. He was one of those people that would get his plate and just start piling it on. Now, I'm all for eating lots of different food. But, like, his salad was covered with mashed potatoes. And, like, the barbecue beans were soaking into there with tuna casserole and rice peas, just all in one glob. It's disgusting. You people that do that, it's disgusting. (laughs) Just so you know, don't invite me over. Me, I'm like a child. You know the plates you give kids? We have a bunch at home that have the little segments, holds everything in its spot. Why aren't those for adults? That's my question. Do you need a Christmas present? I would like a full-size adult segmented plate. I don't like anything touching I will go up to a buffet line 20 times with new plates because I don't want my food to touch each other. It should all be separate. In fact, at home, I will wipe my plate clean when I'm done eating a certain meal. And if this didn't go with it, like when you have Thanksgiving, it's coming up, right? And you guys all pile all of this Thanksgiving food together, disgusting. I want it separate. In fact, I will wipe my plate clean and then go put the cranberries on it because cranberries shouldn't touch anything. (laughs) My mashed potatoes, do any of you guys make the little bowl and pour the gravy into it? Because I don't want it to touch anything. If I want it to touch it, I'll take it and I'll dip it in there. It better not touch anything. I want it segmented. I want it, you know, in its own place. But some of you put it all together. And that's silly enough to say this is kind of what's happening in Colossae. There's a lot of different beliefs, faiths, practices, and they start to get jumbled together. In fact, the Christians there are are starting to, to have different beliefs coming in. You have maybe the Jewish legalism. You have this Greek philosophy. You have oriental mysticism. You have some early Gnostic beliefs. And everybody is proclaiming Jesus, and yet they're coming with kind of this side, this add-on. And at first it's Jesus only, but then it's Jesus plus. Because I can't get rid of this. Did you ever go, a lot of my, I realized this first service, uh, illustrations this morning will deal with food. Uh, I guess I was hungry when I wrote it. I'm not sure why. But as I practice this morning, I go, man, everyone is food, 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 food. But have you ever been to a restaurant? And maybe. (laughs) Hey, I grew up, we never went to a restaurant. They didn't have segmented plates. No, I'm just joking. Um, 
So you've been to a restaurant, but do you ever go to a restaurant with the idea in mind that you have a specific item that you want? Okay, think about that for a second. For me, it's steak, right? There's certain restaurants that just have the best steak. And when I go there, I'm not getting anything else but that steak, right? It has the best steak. But when you get there, there's a lot of good food. And as you're walking to your table, you ever do one of these? Ooh, that looks good. And you start looking at everybody has. And by the time you get to your table, you're thinking, maybe I want something added on with my steak, not just steak. And so maybe you get a side. Do you know as a waiter, I worked for Outback Steakhouse. As a waiter, we were trained to sell you, we call them add-ons. In fact, it's easier to sell you an add-on than to change your mind on what you want to eat. And we would then, if you say I'd like a steak, well, maybe you get one side, but would you like an extra side? How about a side salad? Would you like to add a soup? You can add any of our sides, actually. We have green beans, broccoli, mashed potatoes, Aussie fries. You want some soup? What do you want? We can add it on. Crab cakes? Half rack of ribs? I'll add it. Shrimp on the barbie? You can put them, add them right on. You definitely want something to go with that steak. And I'd convince you to add something on. And we would be, we would have prizes and competitions on how many add-ons we could sell you. Not that we could change your mind from a T-bone to a, a sirloin or vice versa. That was hard to do, but to add on, to make you think that what you're getting wasn't enough. And this was, I mean, a little bit of a science. You were never allowed, at least this is what we were taught, to put down free bread in front of somebody before you ask them, would you like an appetizer? And list at least three of them off. Why? Because if you see that bread, you're going to go, I'm getting the bread, I'm getting the steak. I probably, that's enough. But if you don't see the bread, and I start telling you about our fabulous artichoke dip, well, you might need the artichoke dip. And then I'll bring you the bread. And then I'm going to sell you a bunch of add-ons. And in fact, I'm going to take your order before I bring you your appetizer, Definitely to make sure you need some more add-ons. Because if you get your appetizer and the bread, you're not going to get that soup and salad. Right? For you waiters and waitresses, you're all laughing because this is what we do to you chumps. Right? This is how your bill, you go and think your bill is going to be 50 and you walk out with it 100. I mean, that's how you do it. This is the add-on. This is the idea that your steak isn't good enough. This is what happens in the church. The church is going Jesus only. Steak only. But then maybe we could add something to that. Maybe we can add some rules or regulations or, or experiences or some other beliefs other than what is being preached, which is Jesus only. So if you hear anything today, I'm going to... I always give a lot of times one-point sermons because I can't remember anything more than one point. So I'm going to harp on this over and over. That of Jesus only. Of Jesus complete. That that's all you need. And this is what Paul, all throughout Colossians, does. He comes up against all of this uh, false teaching. All of these Jesus and, Jesus plus. And he goes, no, no, no. 
It's Jesus only. Because when you add to that, oh, I'll get there in a second. Let's look at Colossians 2, 8 through 15. We are going to read a lot of scripture today. I hope you're ready. Um, I, was, I was telling Tim earlier, I said, man, there's a lot of scripture in first service. But I want you to understand kind of the, the breadth of it. That I'm not going to just take the one verse. We'll talk about the one verse, but see how it interacts throughout there. So we're going to, this is our first part that we're going to read. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, oh, let me read that again. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, them, triumphing over them by the cross. You could just go home and read that passage over and over, and I think you'd be in a pretty good spot. Paul goes, look, Jesus, if you, can you put up that first verse in eight? I think it's eight. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Next verse. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. It says, look, Christ is fully God. And in him, you have been brought to fullness. What the heck does that mean? Another way of stating that is you are complete in him. Let me read you what... I love looking up like words that you know, uh, their definition, because it, it just kind of helps illuminate things. Complete. Having all the necessary or appropriate parts. Complete. Having all the necessary or appropriate parts. Jesus is complete, and you are complete in him. Nothing more. It has everything. It is complete. All the necessary parts. But in Colossians, they start going, yeah, I believe that, but how about we add something? You can't add something to something that already is complete because it doesn't need something added. It is complete. In fact, instead of that, what ends up happening when you add to something that is already complete, you are actually subtracting to its completeness. Let me try to describe it to you this way. Can you put up that uh, equation? Do you remember when you learned about negative numbers? Okay, maybe some of you. Remember when you taught your kids about negative numbers? 
Maybe you still can't remember that. Let me teach you about negative numbers. Six, maybe I don't need to. Six plus negative four equals? Oh, five. <laughs> Let me teach you about eyesight and wearing glasses. Wow. I was like, nobody answered. The whole first service got it right. Five plus negative four is? One. Right. You teach your kid this, right? You've learned this. When you add a negative number, it's not addition. It's actually subtraction, right? Well, how? I don't understand. You're adding to five. Shouldn't it be more than five? No. Because you added a negative number. It's less. It's subtraction by addition. Tim and Renska, um, when they first moved here, um, we invited them over for Thanksgiving meal. Uh, Renska had never had a Thanksgiving meal before. You know, different country, never had the Thanksgiving American tradition experience. And so when I found that out, I'm the cook in the family, that puts a lot of pressure on a cook. Someone has never experienced a Thanksgiving dinner. I'm like, oh, I'm going to blow her out of the water. I start finding every recipe I can. I'm going to make every dish my grandmother and mother and great-grandfather has ever made before. It is going to be spectacular. And so I am coming up with all the dishes, the mashed potatoes and the sweet potatoes and the stuffing and the corn and the green beans. And, of course, the centerpiece is the turkey. So I'm like, i got to make the best turkey ever. So I'm thinking, how am I going to make this? I decide, oh, I'm going to brine the turkey. Brining a turkey uh, takes some time, and it also takes a lot of space because you basically have to submerge it in liquid and then keep it cool. Well, my fridge was already full, so I put it in a cooler and then hauled it over to Grace House uh, and took all the shelves out and put it in there. John comes in in the morning. and goes, what the heck? Is there a raw turkey in the fridge? I'm like, oh, I'm brining it. Renska's coming over. She's never had Thanksgiving. It needs to be the best. So I let it brine for like 24, 48 hours, something crazy. Get it home, start cooking everything. They come over. Turkey gets done. I mean, it is beautiful, right? That golden brown. Had, you know, you put butter and rosemary and thyme under the skin so that it seeps into the meat. And I pull off a piece of meat and taste it and spectacular. And I'm like, this is going to be the best Thanksgiving meal ever. And so I take the turkey and put it to the side and all the other dishes are ready and there's just one left that you always have to do last. It's the gravy. So I look and I have beautiful drippings, you know, in the pan. I'm, and I'm a gravy guy. I like gravy. I mean, it needs to be separate, but I like gravy. And so I heat the gravy up, right? I heat the drippings up and I take some flour and water, which is traditionally how my mom always taught me, to make gravy and you shake the flour and the water up and then you pour it into the drippings and you start whisking to make sure you don't get any lumps. You can't have lumpy gravy, right? This has to be spectacular. So I start whisking away. I'm like, oh, I got to make sure this turns out good. And it should start to thicken. Well, for some reason, my gravy isn't getting thick. So I pour some more in and I'm whisking away. I pour and I pour and it's still not thick. And I realize my shaker is empty now. I've used all the flour and water that I combined. I'm like, man, I, that seems like a lot. And the gravy is looking really light-colored. Like, okay, a little more flour, a little more water. 
poured in. Whisk, whisk, whisk. It's kind of getting thicker. I'm like, this is going to have to do. I can't add any more of this flour and water. I'm going to dilute, you know, the gravy. It's, it's not going to have any taste to it. So I take it off the stove. Maybe as it cools, it will thicken up. Didn't really happen. So I take a spoon because I want to make sure it's salted and peppered, right? And I taste it. Now, normally when I taste food, Melissa will tell you, like, Every time I taste it, it's good. I'm like, oh, this is so good. And then I want everybody else to try it right there on the spot. So I take a spoon and I taste it. Let me try to paint you a picture of what this tasted like. Have you ever had a jelly belly jelly bean? And you know how they have all these crazy flavors? Well, imagine a jelly belly jelly bean that's flavored turkey dinner. I had accidentally... Used powdered sugar instead of flour. <laughs> I'm not kidding when it tastes like a Jelly Belly turkey dinner. My, I was like. <laughs> you know, of course I made everybody taste it. I was so frustrated. I would used all the drippings, right? Okay, comical as that is, here's the point. Uh, like, well, why did we go on for turkey dinner? I kept adding, right? I kept adding to this gravy, thinking I'm going to make it better. It's going to thicken up. But every time I kept adding the sugar water, right, I kept diluting the turkey, the turkey flavor. Now all of a sudden I just have this sweet candy-flavored syrup. In hindsight, I should have got like an angel food cake and poured it over the top like I might do that this year come on over for Thanksgiving but every time I added it I thought I was making it better in fact that's what most of us think that when we add to something right a little bit more is kind of better more is better but when it comes to our Christianity when it comes to faith what Paul ends up hitting on is that when you add to Christ when you add to the gospel of Jesus sufficient, Jesus paid it all, you are actually subtracting from the greatness. You are subtracting to the, completion, to the completion of the cross. You are subtracting from his supremacy. The whole book of Colossians is trying to hit this home. This is what Paul is writing. You can't keep adding on. Every time you add on, you are actually making the gospel incomplete. It was complete, remember? Having all the necessary parts. Nothing was missing. But you start adding on. And as you add on these different beliefs and traditions, you start to take away from what the Bible says about Christ and his fullness and his deity and his completion. This happens in Colossae. A lot of wise people are teaching and they start bringing with them other ideas than Christ alone. I'll give you a couple of these that, that I thought were interesting. One idea was uh, that some of the mysticism was going on is that spiritual realm is holy the physical realm is unholy, and thus there can be no interaction. 
Now that's kind, kind, kind of true, right? Like God is holy, right? Completely holy and separate from sin. But that's not really the full story. And they would go on to say that because God is holy, he can have nothing to do with this physical matter of human beings. Uh, and, and so he definitely can't have God's son in human form on earth. And so they start to add on, well, we're going to add that the spiritual realm is holy and we're unholy. And thus we start to subtract, right, Emmanuel, God with us. We start to subtract who Jesus was because he can't be fully God, right, and be here because God is holy and we're not, and this is all evil. And so as they add this twist, it starts to subtract from the greatness of Christ, of the greatness of Jesus. Let me read you this passage. Um, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Oh, hold on one second. So Paul addresses this, and we're going to read it. Uh, and it's almost in its original form, written more like a poem. Of course, most of that is lost in English. Uh, there's actually so much uh, 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 poetry in scripture that we are just, right? You're oblivious to because it gets translated and lost. But scholars believe that actually early Christians took this and used it as a hymn or some sort of liturgy that they would recite to remind themselves who Jesus is. And so in it, Paul constantly says the word all. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little combination reading. I'm going to read it, and there's going to be the word all. And I want you to say, there, good job, A+. plus, Right? I want you to say all every time we get to that for emphasis of what he's talking about. Okay, you ready? All right, go ahead, Dina. He starts off. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation. For in him... Things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, things have been created through him and for him. He is before things, and in him things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Paul comes out saying that Jesus, right? All, 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 all. Seven times. Jesus, complete. But when he says, if you put the first part up there, Dino, go into a little bit of the language behind that. The sun is the image of the invisible God. Image there is fascinating. Uh, if you look it up, um, it actually, um, in the Greek, is the word icon, which we get the word icon from today. But if you would take that and translate it most often, it was used in the Greek language for portrait. 
Our closest word to portrait, now in English, would be photograph. They would actually, when two people got together and say you were selling somebody a piece of property and they were going to sign a legal agreement, right? There was no IDs to bring to make sure you could prove who you were by your picture, right? There was none of that. And so what they would do is they would write down distinguishing characteristics of the persons signing the agreement. So for me, it would be beautiful, bald, beard, glasses, tall, right? Lazy eye, I mean, I don't have that, but, you know, they would write distinguishing characteristics about that person. So if there was ever a dispute, okay, they would know who signed this agreement, right? If all of those described me, I couldn't say, oh, that wasn't me. That was me. And the word they would use there is icon. They would put the person's icon on paper. So when Paul says the son is the icon of the invisible God, he is saying he is the visible representation of God. He is... God, he is what you can see now in the flesh. The firstborn over all creation. Now we can go, well, was Jesus created? Firstborn, often that word is referred to, uh, yes, someone that is firstborn, but also someone that has a certain authority or prestige. Throughout the Bible, we find out of people who weren't a firstborn having the firstborn's birthright. Because when you were the firstborn, you were given everything the father had. Your rights as the firstborn was to own everything the father had. And so Paul goes, you cannot preach that Jesus is, is, is not God. He is fully God. He is the image, the icon of God. He is over all creation. And he goes into almost a tirade in English, it seems like it, of saying, Jesus created all things. Through him all things were created. For him all things were created. In him all things were created. Things on earth, things in heaven, visible, invisible, everything. He was the creator. See, once again, people were adding on. And they started adding on to, if this world is evil and God is good, then God could not have created an evil world. Thus, some sort of evil God must have created this world. Now you would say, well, you can't add that on, but that's what they were doing. They were adding on pieces which then took away from the deity, the supremacy of Christ. You cannot add to the message of Christ. If you do, you subtract his fullness, you subtract his deity, you subtract his supremacy, you subtract Lord of all. If Christ is complete, then nothing needs to be added. Another thing they start talking about. Okay, so we have this, there's one idea that God's not good, so a bad God created earth. Another one of um, that God, Jesus isn't totally God. And so Paul starts smashing those. And then he comes to another area that people were adding on, bringing in. 
And this is the idea of knowledge and wisdom. That, yes, Jesus died for you. Yes, you have salvation through him. But to be spiritually elite, you need some sort of extra knowledge or wisdom. You need this extra thing that actually isn't given to the normal person. There's secret scriptures that you need to know. This actually sounds a lot like Scientology. Um, we did several years ago, we were teaching our senior high about different religions and how they were different uh, than Christianity to see how Christianity, what we believe and, and why that's different. And the one big thing with Scientology that I found fascinating is that Scientology, if you look up scriptures for Scientology, it's very hard to find them. In fact, several years ago, they sued one of their ex-members for taking secret scriptures and putting them online for the normal person. Because you weren't allowed, the normal person wasn't allowed to have those. You had to get to a level of spiritual enlightenment. Then we'd let you read them. And then you go even farther. It's usually what a, a cult does. I'm just saying. You go online and you search Bible. You know how many different versions of the Bible you can find? I haven't done it, but probably a lot. Right? A lot. And so this starts creeping up. And it's coming from wise people. People that seem to know what they're talking about. And they're going, Jesus and knowledge. You need this extra knowledge. And so then Paul comes against that. Um, if we can read Colossians 2. Oh, let me make sure I get that right. 2 through 4. My goal is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love. This is Paul talking to the church. So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. In order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine sounding arguments. Can you go back one slide? I, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding complete lacking nothing having all the parts next slide in order that they may know the mystery of God namely Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge here's my favorite part about this we get to this Paul saying that there's this mystery in God there is a mystery in God but that in Jesus, that is made fully known. He uses the word hidden, which might seem odd to that if it's fully known. Early uh, Gnosticism, Gnostic gets its name from the word knowledge, and they were all about knowledge. It was like knowledge and then faith. And knowledge was supreme. And so the Gnostics had actually books, secret scripture, that the average person wasn't allowed. And it was called Apocrypha. And they weren't allowed to read that. The normal everyday person. You had to reach this certain level. And until you did, you can't read it. And unless you read it, you're not going to have spiritual enlightenment. And so, they're saying, yes, Jesus. But you need some of this knowledge and wisdom. And Paul comes back and he says, no. 
everything, complete understanding is hidden in Christ. Hidden in Greek, apocrypha. He's saying your books that you think have all this wisdom and knowledge in it, guess where it's at? It's in Christ. And Christ is available. And through him, you have complete understanding of the mystery of, of, of God. The mystery of grace. The mystery of love. It's in Christ. Apocrypha in Christ. It's hidden away in Christ. Not that we can't find it, but that it's laid up for you. Stored away for you. Do you ever put away something in the attic? So that maybe your kid can have it later on. My mom did that with some of my old stuff that I still have. Right after I was done with it, she's like, I'm going to store it away so your children can have it. Right? It was mine. It was going to be given to me. It was being kept safe. And then it was given to me. This is God in Jesus. His, the mystery of God is in Christ Jesus. Christ alone. No other books no other scriptures, no other special knowledge that you have to have. Now, I don't know for you, do you add things to Jesus? Do you add certain knowledge or philosophy that, well, Jesus is good, but you need this? Because when you add extra knowledge onto Jesus, you make Jesus insufficient, right? You add wisdom, you need this special revelation to be fully mature, fully spiritually matured, then Jesus is not enough. Jesus isn't sufficient. Jesus isn't full. Jesus isn't complete. Jesus isn't supreme. Jesus isn't. It's subtraction. It's not addition. You can't add to the message of Jesus and have it stay the same. And what it was was complete. And when we add to it, we make it incomplete. I told you I'm going to harp on the same thing over and over. This, was, this has been, uh, you know, some, some weeks when you study to preach, uh, it's very eye-opening. And this one was for me, eye-opening. Jesus is complete. He has supremacy over, in, and through all things. There is no other message, no other wisdom or ritual that needs to be added. In Colossians, this is what's happening. They're adding all of these things. What's the first word your child said to you? No? Did I hear one of them? Kids learn no at such a young age. And why is that? It's because we say it to them over and over and over again, right? No, no, no. Don't touch that. Don't touch that. Come here. Come here. Come here. No, no, no. Like it wasn't serious the first time. I was thinking if you created an app that just had the word no on it that you could hit, like you would sell it to all parents. Because that's all you have to, I mean, constantly telling your child no. And they learn that from repetition. So I was reading um, on our first son a, a parent book about how to raise your children. Always dangerous thing to do. And they're saying, you know, if you don't want your child's first word to be no, you should come up with a different way to say no and then redirect them. I was thinking, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense. 
And for some reason, I don't know why, I came up with the phrase, not for babies. And so instead of telling Prescott no as a kid, as a, as a baby, I just always told them, not for babies, not for babies, not for babies, not for babies. And guess what? His first word wasn't no. So I thought, boy, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Like, he, he doesn't just say no to everything. Gets a little bit older, and we're sitting down, going to watch a movie, and I get him a snack, and he's holding it, and I look over, and, you know, the snack's all separate. Nothing else is touching it. So I go, you know, Teddy Grahams, those look great. And so I go to reach. You know where this is going. He says to me, not for babies, Daddy, and pulls it away. Because I ingrained in him, that's how you say no. In fact, it's so funny. Jess Holy and Madison O'Donnell babysit for us often. And, and I never realized this happens, but we have an, our, our Prescott is now four and Kobe's one. They go, we had the biggest revelation when you said that. We both looked at each other because Prescott tells Kobe all the time, not for babies. I've never, it's, I don't even hear it anymore, but it's so ingrained in his head that that's what you tell somebody when you don't want them to take it. Instead of no, you tell them not for babies. Where am I going with this? The church in Colossae, like I said, were made up of a lot of Gentiles, and so they're bringing in some of this Greek philosophy, this mysticism, um, some of this Gnostic belief, but there was a section of Jews. And the Jews are also bringing in their own stuff. And what the Jews are bringing in is that you are made righteous by what? By your works, right? That to be right with God, you needed to do a certain amount of things or you needed not to do a certain amount of things. And they have been ingrained in this over and over and over. This old covenant, the old law. And so when they come to belief in Jesus, they say, yes, Jesus paid it all. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is, has supremacy, right? Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. But you probably still should follow some of the laws. You probably should still hold to that festival and that, and, and, and that dietary restriction. I wouldn't touch that. That's not good. That's going to put you in, in a bad place with God. You're not going to be in favor with God if you do that. And so they start adding that on to the church. You see how this is going? This is all of these, and we do this all the time. Most of you have come from different backgrounds, right? And, and different ways you've been raised. And so you bring some of this into your Christian faith. And you add on a little of this, and you add on a little of that. And the Jews started adding on legalism, because that's what they grew up with. And so Paul, once again, and he does this over and over, says something to refute this. Can you uh, put up Colossians 2, 16 through 23? Therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regards to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. 
They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinew, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. Big piece of scripture there. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. Watch out, Paul says. This message looks good. In fact, even in the church, those who are very legalistic, we often look at as, as a little holier than the rest of us, right? That, oh, they follow all of these rules. Look at how spiritual they are. I don't know, maybe for some of you, not, not bashing the Catholic church, but coming out of a Catholic background, my mom was, came out of a Catholic background when we were young, uh, and a lot of that rule following, right, that you have to do these things to be right with God, kind of got added in, got added in to grace, right? Is grace really grace if you have those add-ons of regulations, legalism? Paul is saying, don't let people judge you. Don't, don't listen to this. This, you have to celebrate this moon festival or you have to hold this that it was old that was a shadow of things to come the reality is found in Christ the completeness is found in Christ the fullness is found in Christ if you also notice there that they start talking about angel worship another predominant belief uh, was that God being so holy and us being down here there was like this mediator between him and God. Well, I kind of believe that with Jesus, right? But then they get into angels being mediators. And that actually, it's like Jesus, it's you, Jesus, angels, God. And so if you want to know God more, you're going to have to have some sort of spiritual enlightenment with angels, Right? If you add on that belief that angels are our mediator, uh, mediates between us and God, what are you taking away from? Jesus' finished work on the cross. The completion. Do you see how this is going? When you, take, when you add on these, you take away from the completeness, the fullness of Jesus as Lord of all. You can't keep adding on, Right? And not have the idea of Jesus change. It becomes an incomplete uh, scripture. Jesus only. Right? It's a basic concept. But we love to add things onto it. We love to add, yes, but whatever your bent is. Whether that's following the rules, right? Whether that's uh, some sort of knowledge or spiritual Awakening, enlighten, enlightenment. Me, right? I 
like to please people. I am a people pleaser. And so in turn, guess what I do with God? I want to try to please him by kind of like manipulating the situation, right? And so I go, yes, Jesus, Jesus all, my, my relationship with God is through Jesus and it's complete, but let me try to make sure God really likes me. I take away from Jesus what he did on the cross. Band, if you guys want to come up, let me close in saying this. Um, that was a lot to kind of get through. I would encourage you to go through and read Colossians. Read it several times. Um, but the best thing that, that at least spoke to me this week, as I read it, as I studied it, that I don't have to add on something to Jesus. I don't have to have special works or some sort of spiritual ceremony. I don't have to have an out-of-body experience or special knowledge. I am complete in Christ because Christ is complete. You are full in Christ because Christ is fully God. And here's what I found was fat when I read this. This relationship with God, this completeness, this fullness, this isn't something to be achieved. This is something to be enjoyed. Think about that. This isn't something to be achieved. It's something to be enjoyed. I am constantly trying to achieve this right respect with God, right? This right relationship. Guess what? It's done. Christ did it. I now get to enjoy my status. Christ alone. Nothing else added on. Next time you go for that steak dinner and they say, what do you want to add on? You say, steak. Steak only. Right? Jesus only. He is enough. He is complete. He is full. He is over all things, in all things, through all things. Jesus is enough. So we're going to sing to end the song, Jesus is Enough, uh, as a way of proclaiming our faith. That yes, hey, we believe what's in Scripture. That Jesus was our way to God. That he is our mediator between God and us. That everything was solved on the cross, death and resurrection. Everything. There's nothing left you have to do, right? So, would you stand?